0: We've been keeping bees since, I don't know, over 9,000 years ago in Egypt, when people used to put beehives on rafts down the Nile River to pollinate all the farmland crops. It was more efficient. Bees would bring us more food when they visit our farms. They transform flowers into fruit.
1: Welcome to the Hurled Minds Podcast, where we discover how to get out of our own way, unleash the full capability of our mind, become the hero of our story and a hero. For other people.
0: From an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved to manage threatening encounters. I will do everything in my ability to help them, but they make the call. We have to do it in a way that doesn't just assume that going faster is going to be the cure-all. When you suffer, and then you come out of it on the other side, you stand a little taller, your voice doesn't shake anymore, your eyes are always up. Sorry
1: to, to depress you guys. Self-doubt is par for the course. It's just how you choose to deal with them, react to them, or not react to them. Uh, a little tough love goes a long way and high expectations.
0: Also goes a long way. But the more you expect of someone, the more they'll do.
1: I have to keep moving
0: forward. No good comes from going back. I don't need red tape. I'm not into rules. I'm not into regulation. I'm just gonna do this.
1: Welcome back to the Heroic Minds podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Noah Wilson Rich. Noah is a behavioral ecologist and published author. He is the founder of the Best Bees Company, a top-to-bottom beekeeping service. The company also functions as a means to raise funding for scientific research to improve honeybee health. And now, why are the bees so important? Well, did you know that investing into the health of bees, we can help save our environment, secure sources of food, and improve our economy? But before we get into the bees, we unpack Noah's empowering journey through life as a young boy that went from insect avoiding to insect studying and the life and business lessons learned along the way. Bees. We begin with what we can learn from the bees when it comes to our own survival, both physically and socially. We then move into what bees do for us, why some bees survive better in the city, and last but not least, how you can help strengthen the bee population with your own garden Or balcony. Did you know that scientists can track exactly where and what plants your honey came from? All that and more in this episode. But before we hop into this episode, a reminder as the food delivery companies continue to expand during this time of uncertainty, this new way of living during COVID-19, during this pandemic. Remember to check out our friends at trulocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca. If you want high quality meat, individually packaged, shipped right to your doorstep. You can change the order every month. You can have it delivered every four weeks, three weeks, 50 days, 26 days. It's totally up to you. That is your call. No cancellation fees, no hidden fees at all for that matter, just high quality meat and high quality customer service. That is truelocal.ca T R U L O C A L.ca. If you want to give them a try, make sure you use the discount code heroic minds25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and ten dollars off a personal size box. Alrighty, here we go. What made you want to go to school to um, I guess get a PhD in studying honeybee health? Where did that even begin?
0: Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, It's a fun question and it starts in a setback. So very much of the Heroic Minds brand. And for me, I didn't want to get a PhD in honeybee immunology as my focus. It It was because that's the only school I got into. And, you know, all it takes is one school for somebody to advance to that direction in life. And for that, I'm so grateful. But I wasn't the type of kid who grew up playing in the dirt and playing with bugs. I grew up in the suburb of New York City. I was born in Manhattan. My whole family were, you know, city dwellers scared of insects and spiders and rats and mice like most people. You know, just (gasps) I was a pretty typical... Dude, but I, you know I'm gay, and growing up gay was, I think, a really big point of adversity in my life. And I think that I got through that at, by being an overachiever. And it's not that I was naturally capable of getting a PhD, so to speak. I, I didn't ace all my exams. I had to study so hard all the time to just catch up to the average kid. But I just worked hard at that. I think because I was gay, but I got an A was my approach. And so mm. through good grades, persistence academically, and even if the grades were only good enough to get me into one program, and even if that program was stinging insects that I had never liked really before, I was like, all right, bees it is. Let's do this.
1: Right. Well, that's, so do you, I mean, geez, I didn't even know this would be part of the conversation. This is oh, fantastic. I just dropped
0: all the honesty on you right there, right from you the just start. Did. Boom. Let's talk.
1: <laughs> okay before we before we hop into the bees, I, I find that intriguing. I, we always talk about motivation on this podcast. and it seems like it was almost an unhealthy way that you motivated yourself. am I am I wrong in saying that? like the no. to, you it almost seems like you had to make up for something because of the stereotype or social value at the time that was given to someone that was gay. Is that? Is that
0: Yeah. And the bullying, you know, I mean, the physical bullying and the chanting and the taunting and the tormenting and, uh, you know, it's really tough because I didn't even know I was gay when it all started. It started in kindergarten. You know, I would sit with oh. the girls and like, that's, you can't sit there. Right. It's just something that it's, it's a weird social construct. So yeah, it would really push me to think about health in a way that I think we all do health. It's not like we are in an abundant landscape with resources that are just plentiful health is a choice for most of us. We have to choose what we're going to say. We're going to be healthy in this aspect, but that's going to take a sacrifice from that aspect of my health, whether it's nutrition, mental, physical, whatever. And so for me, yeah, it wasn't very healthy to be this overachiever in a way that wasn't natural, but I was at risk of some physical harm and mental abuse that I had to get out of
1: interesting. So it's almost that it kind of goes into the hierarchy of, of needs. Like where I need that safety first before I can go into the next step, the next run. Yeah. And I think I'm still there. So it's almost that yeah. it kind of goes know, into but the not hierarchy necessarily
0: from of need. The gay taunting, but you know, other factors in life. And I think that most people can relate to that.
1: Wow. When did you discover this idea? Like, I've never even heard health approach that way, but I think it's such a, we love, I think as people, we love numbers and ideas mm. that we can actually conceptualize, and that does it in such a good way. At what point on your journey did that change to a healthier approach, or are you still in the midst of that?
0: Yeah, well, of course, I'm still in the midst of that for sure, but. I would say through grad school, through that one program that I got into, even for undergrad, I only got into one school. You know, I applied to 11 colleges in my life. I got into two. That's all I needed, you know, undergrad and grad school. The benefit of school, which I actually feel very strongly is not for everybody. I mean, if I had not gone to school and just gotten a job, I'd be, I think, doing quite well, maybe better than where I am today. So I think school, it's it's a place where you go to learn how to think. And so thinking about health trade-offs, that's something that's very ecology. In grad school, I was studying ecology, and it's all about sacrifices. And if you have one bit of energy going into a system, a lot of ecological systems will think about which one of three areas of like this triangle of health and energy is it going to go into defense, reproduction, um, or growth. And those are three trade-offs in the ecological world that scientists think about, even whether just looking at plants, for example, something that's not so interesting, but it can be applied to every individual human, where if you're going to do something, is it going to be defense, growth, or reproduction, or different types of health? It's the same framework, a way of thinking.
1: That is fascinating. That's so cool. I've never ever heard that. That is awesome. and Yeah, I mean, in biology, it's so fun
0: when you think about theory, because it's the interconnectedness of many things. And so you can then think about, well, how does that apply to me? I'm a human. We don't think about ourselves as humans. It's so funny, but... If you think about changing your perspective on something, especially in this time of quarantine when we're staring out our windows, we need a change of perspective. So start noticing what's out there. If it's a bug, a plant, a bee, a flower, or a reflection of yourself, we're all connected based on this theory. How do things grow? How do things evolve? How do things adapt? By being part of that system, I think it can make us feel less alone.
1: Totally, and we just had that two episodes ago on the podcast. It was a spirit, more of a spirituality discussion uh, from a yogic teacher, and it was that interconnectedness. And I think you're totally right. This pause in time has given us this ability to, I think, reflect all the way back to, hey, all we really have is each other. Like that's, yeah. and that can be scary for some. I think it's super powerful if you really think about it of of how. Uh, It all depends on how much we work together will depict how powerful we really are.
0: Absolutely. And it's so interesting to learn about this togetherness idea when we think about things like bees. If you look at the genes of bees, over time, bees have lost individual genes but gained group genes, So this togetherness, when you look at other social creatures like humans, non-human societies, ants, bees, termites, wasps. I mean, things that most people, especially gay kids, are like, ew. (laughs) But when you learn more about them and you understand that these are societies that have been around for over 100 million years, what do they look like now? Because humans have been around for tens of thousands of years. So if we can look at how those are organized, for example, bees, there's a queen, but no king, right? They, they're female dominant. So we can probably make some assumptions that natural selection has favored complex societies that look a particular way. For times of pandemics with bees, they get diseases just like humans do, viruses, bacterial, fungal, um, mites. and those have changed their social interactions in ways that we're seeing in humans now. It's so humbling when we get this disease because it connects us, just like your conversation with the yoga teacher. It's so important when people think about the universe and yoga, and I do yoga, but to connect people who aren't that crunchy, let's say, when we think about energy in the universe, it is this interconnectedness of theory, of biological concepts over time that shape and change us. So when we get a pandemic, I think when we go through this, we're going to be less physically connected, like the handshakes might change to a bow. You know, Who knows? That's human specific. What we see in bees is that diseases have made them change their social behaviors. They groom each other. They Feed each other. They have certain behaviors that are only taken by young bees. Baby bees start cleaning. Like in the future, maybe human baby bees could be more, or maybe baby humans, maybe they could be more helpful, right? Maybe we'll start to see them develop a little younger, perhaps, so that they could help out around the house. I mean, who knows what it'll be right. like, but those theories make us less special. They make us less surprised when things like pandemics happen or when things like individual traumas happen. We can look to other non-human societies to under how they cope and help one another too. It,
1: it's fascinating and bizarre at the same time to talk about us as animals because we never do. We, we talk about ourselves as these rational beat, robotic beings that just make, you know, black and white decisions, yet we really don't. And, and to go into your comment already about maybe we have these younger people act a different way that then helps our society and in some or our race or whatever you want to call it in some way i mean people are already blood donations have gone way up so that's just like a little reaction that has caused us to change socially how we act to hopefully help other people
0: Well, definitely thinking about blood donations, the United States has started to lift some of the restrictions put against gay men from 1982, I believe is the year, saying gay men can't donate blood. And that's because of a societal construct, thinking gay men have dirty blood with the HIV epidemic happening. You know, it's like we haven't made any progress in HIV since 1982. Come on. I used right. to work at the Blood Donor Center at Children's Hospital in Boston, and they test the blood for everything. So God forbid somebody's donating blood with a disease, it gets caught. You know, we're yeah. really more, more advanced than that. So that's an example, too, of how society changes over time. Even, you know, you love playing hockey, Ben. I mean, hockey is so cool when we think about how young people are getting into sports. I don't know if hockey is like soccer when you start as a young kid do does everybody just chase the puck in a group
1: oh 100 and some don't (laughs) some just stay in the complete other side of the ice just doing uh (laughs) snow angels so it's a bit of everything it's so
0: funny and so play when you think about the concept of play from an evolutionary biology perspective it's defined as an incomplete sequence of adult behavior and so Play, it's really important for training people. And I think that's something we can probably expect to see in humans, maybe younger and younger, or we'll be more adept at. Um, at play. I'm a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab, and they've got you know, a Lego-sponsored lab. It's all about play, and there's a robot named Jibo that can interact with kids with storytelling. So I think that humans, over time, in the face of disease, in the face of needs for the hockey pipeline, <laughs> all of these things will get more skilled at advanced play for kids, maybe younger, and, and that will really, I think, be a future evolutionary prediction for the human animal.
1: Wow. I'm really starting to see now how, even if you, if I look back at my life of things that have changed and how these big problems have forced us to change how we act. And, and because this issue is so widespread across humans, not just a subgroup, not just the hockey culture, not just the uh, gay community, not just it's brought everyone together Mm -hmm. that now the entire group of humanity has to change as one. And I think that's so powerful on so many levels, both physical, social.
0: Yeah. And what's so interesting too, we're taking it a step further. When you say the whole society has to change, it's honestly not that it has to, it's that it just does. And so thinking about your mission, your heroic minds, people talking about individual trauma and overcoming tangible adversity versus these bigger things we're talking about now. I think that, Everybody's trauma is different. Everybody's adversity is different, certainly when it's a, a tangible aspect. But I do believe that there's some solace that people can take in knowing that the world just adapts. It's not that society changes because it needs to, wants to, or has to. It's that it just does. And sometimes for trauma, it feels like that has stopped. Everything everything you trust and believed in and knew is no longer true. And yet, everything continues to evolve and change. And I think that, can renew a sense of trust for somebody who's trying to work through this challenge in life to know, look, everything's going to keep going somehow. Evolution doesn't work in a direction and it doesn't strive to per- for perfection. And that's something that I hope too can allow people who are going through challenges to understand that we don't know where we're going and it might not be better than where we are today or where yesterday, but it's going to change one way or another. And we just got to be patient and keep trying every
1: day. That is so cool. That's, It's such an empowering message at this time. And I think that's a a healthy reminder is that we are moving forward. Even when people feel as if they're stagnant, feel as if they're bored alone in their apartment, uh, it's moving forward. So it's an opportunity.
0: Yeah. And it's going to change. I mean, again, we don't know if it's going to be better, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. hopefully with a little bit of effort every day, even if it's just positive thinking or intention setting or actual action, if you're, if you're in a good direction, then your odds are likely that things will get better.
1: Right. Right. Wow. Well, that was one way to kick things off in the, the bee <laughs> conversation that I that I was expecting to hop right into. And I well, careful I when you open a
0: beehive, you're gonna fall deep down.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, I hope it continues to dip and dive other ways. And I think well, let's step into the the bit of that bee conversation. I think one let's of the a deep dive. The, the, the most intriguing pieces for, for many people, myself included, is the lack of understanding on really how wide of an impact bees have on, yeah. on agriculture leading right into the economy and, and wondered if you could, could explain some of the, the areas maybe people might not even realize, hey, this is affected by the number of healthy bees that we have to, if they're able to do their job or not.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, for for the uninitiated to the bee world, which unfortunately is most, but I'm telling you, anybody who's curious about beekeeping, it is super dope, so interesting, so relaxing, and it has such a deep history across all cultures. It's connecting. If you just replace the word bees with the word food, then I think you'll start to get a better sense of why this matters. Bees matter because they bring us food. Everybody eats food, Republicans and Democrats, any nationality, it's this universal unifier. And we even see this in politics, places like the city of Los Angeles. They had a law on the books from the 1860s saying bees were illegal. And that stuck through 2015 when bees and beekeeping, they're finally legalized. Bees were not illegal because of anything you might think of. So think to yourself, why were bees illegal in L.A.? Like what do you might what might you think, Ben?
1: Because they'll sting someone and insurance is an issue or
0: Yeah. I mean those are logical reasons, right? Yeah. Those, those are not the reasons at all, but <laughs> <laughs> you might think that they are, right? Because that's what we think today. Back in the day, LA was largely agricultural, and people saw bees on their fruit trees and thought that bees were stealing our food. And so because there was this idea that a pollinator takes food instead of giving food, pollinators visit flowers and the flowers turn into fruit they were made illegal because we thought we're losing our food to pollinators. It's like butterflies, illegal, and, you know, 200,000 species of pollinators. Uh, it's, it's crazy. So now we know that's not true, and yet the law still remained. So it was a unanimous bipartisan issue, 15 to 0, in favor of legalizing bees. You know, all Republicans and Democrats coming together in L.A. It's a beautiful thing. We even see in the White House, the Obamas brought a beehive to the White House. The Trumps kept the bees. It's, you know, it's like a cute, cute story in a way that maybe disgusts other people for being too <laughs> political. Yeah. Um, so bees bring us food. If we're talking about the economic impact, if it's somebody like my dad who's like, I don't eat fruits and vegetables and I don't care about bees and I don't eat honey, right? So I get that. I mean, bees bring over 90 crops, fruit and vegetable crops to our plates in the United States. They also feed the dairy and cattle industry. So if you're like my dad, just meat and potatoes, well, the entire cattle industry relies on bees for feeding them hay and alfalfa. And uh, that's all the dairy, so combined, it's over $20 billion to the United States economy just by bees alone. This insect brings the US $20 billion, And globally, it's over $100 billion to the global economy every year just from this little insect. Even think about lesser-known bee species, there's 20,000 of them. There's one called the alfalfa leafcutter bee. That's thought to bring $9 billion. So when we think about random bee species and, and eight of them now being on the Endangered Species Act, it might seem random to talk about this weird bee species, but if you replace that word bee with food, you then start to understand the impact.
1: Totally, totally. We've seen that in other, I mean, political economical conversations too, where you change the, the way you word something. I mean, even in my biased experience, subjective experience with, with head injuries and concussion, when it was called concussion, it was a a bump on the head that no one really worried about. And then they started calling it a head injury. And all of a sudden it changes and people's reactions change and how they deal with them change along the line. And I think even instantly right now, you saying that to me, calling it food, (laughs) it's like, yeah, wait a second, this is more important than I thought.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing too, because then you think about the evolutionary impact on the society of humans. So whether it's talking about head injuries, that then changes how we play. Play changes how we act play relates to other behavior in different contexts, and that has more ripples throughout society. And then, certainly with humans, it's interesting when we have different cultures that are competing, you could then see some cultures evolving a little faster, all starting with how they play. So, Canada, I mean, people play really well in Canada. We normally think about Canada as the aggressor, right? They kind of know how to play ball, so to speak, (laughs) And I think that's a really cool connection there. And I think that other societies need to learn from successful human societies, successful insect societies, even to be able to make predictions to see if we can learn the hard lessons that they've already learned and then to speed it up and try to skip those hard ones and just be our best selves.
1: And so what are some of those hard lessons bees have? And even if it is a a fault of, of the human species, Where have bees kind of learned that tough message? Where are they a little bit weaker? Where could they use some support or where have they already changed?
0: Yeah. I mean, so this really brings us to the bee crisis today. So bees and humans are very, very close. We've been keeping bees since, I don't know, over 9,000 years ago in Egypt when people used to put beehives on rafts down the Nile River to pollinate all the farmland crops it was more efficient bees would bring us more food when they visit our farms they transform flowers into fruit it's essentially how flowers have sex they transfer sperm to the bee and the bee moves that sperm to a female flower and impregnates it so the kinky wonderful world of, of pollination <laughs> is right there you can even think of look at a bee and you think that's sex happening in a, with a third party you're just trying to target
1: everyone, everyone right now you are <laughs> calling it food you're calling it sex i see what you're doing i know how marketing works <laughs>
0: that's it that's what it is but for bees, by doing so, they have become very reliant on humans in this sense. Now, to be clear, there's also other perspectives here and that bees don't need humans. Humans need to go away, stop working with bees, and let the bees just... Just be, and there's a lot of fun discussion. there talking about that, but from the agricultural system with humans, we have bred honeybees and worked with honeybees for so long in the United States, North America, over 400 years. You know of, of bees here that settlers brought over, like the Europeans were called. Um, were brought over honeybees, and Native Americans were said to call the bees the white man's fly because honeybees would swarm ahead of the Europeans, and they could Native Americans could start to see. Okay, we know that there's some settlers coming um, because of oh, the bees. Okay. So the challenge there that honeybees have is now they really thrive very well in managed beehives. It's something that uh, we're thinking with a lot of diseases affecting bees, that those have wiped out what we call feral beehives or beehives living in a hole in a tree like Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. So it's a thought that there are not that many of those out there. And those bees that are out there are very, um, have very low genetic diversity. So they're not very healthy, so to speak. They are at risk of a plague wiping the rest of them out. Beehives that are managed by humans do quite well. Humans breed bees. You know, with my team at the Best Bees Company, we're focused on bee research, and we do that by installing and managing beehives at business rooftops, at home gardens across the country. Our bees do really well, and we're monitoring them, and so the challenge that bees have is now they've become, in some way, maybe reliant on another species for their health that could be seen as a benefit or as a cost. It seems like it could be working for them because maybe bees were dying off anyway. And so from plagues, let's say, like the Varroa mite in the United States, that mite came in 1987, brought a lot of other diseases with it, and really killed off a lot of bees. So it could be bad to be reliant on humans, but it could be a good thing because maybe it's working. And our lesson here as humans, maybe we could learn that sooner and less hard if we started relying on other species too. Maybe we can see how other social successful beings rely on us and think, okay, how else could we better live with you know, bees, ants, wasps, termites, other social things, or maybe just other organisms for farming help or other ideas there too. But the more we can work with other organisms, I think that's a lesson from other successful groups like farming ants that work with a particular fungus to get food. We'll be better off if we can do that too, instead of fighting the natural world.
1: And do you think in our lifetime, we can see those bees that are maintained or supported by humans right now go back to a greater, uh, number that can live on their own back in the Winnie the Pooh type approach.
0: Yeah. So it's so interesting when you think about evolution, there's, you know, it can happen in a natural way or an artificial way, artificially being people are getting involved Evolution doesn't necessarily just return to where it was. And I think that's a lesson with a pandemic or with any challenge a person is going through, overcoming adversity. We always want things to go back to how it was. Oh, so good. That was familiar. I know the risks. I know how that's going to turn out. Can we go back to where it was? Can bees, for example, here with your question, go back to how they were before plagues and other things really affected them? And you know, it's likely no. It's likely that the future of any system, it's, there's so much randomness involved, it's not going to look like it used to. But I will say that, for example, with our team, Best Bees is breeding local bees in our 14 cities across the country so that we're trying to get hyper-local pollinators to match with the flowers and the local food system in any given area. And by sharing those queen bees with local beekeepers, we can then be able to have bees that are best locally adapted to healthiest for those communities. And then maybe they'll go off and live in the empty trees that bees used to live in, let's say, maybe fill empty niches.
1: Wow. So you, from a, I'm a visual person, so the goal is kind of within a, Close, somewhat close geographical area and I'm not actually familiar with how far as bees are willing to travel but like three to five miles three to five miles so you would want the basically the flowers or plants vegetation that they are looking for mixed in between each hive location with the goal of one day having them all intermingle at different hives and gr- and continue to grow the population on their own
0: yeah in a way sure so so visually speaking, think about uh, where you live. So tell me, where do you live, Ben?
1: I'm just about an hour outside of Toronto, Waterloo, Ontario. Yeah.
0: Waterloo. I mean, amazing. So many wildflowers, gardens, so much habitat there. Think then of Toronto nearby for you and the city and the habitat that was there before we created the built environment versus what it looks like today. Think about the rooftops that are just empty where there used to be meadows or habitat. right? That visual, that's something that we have as humans total control over. We built that. We continue to maintain it we're going to keep building on it. If you're picturing a future where we have meadows and things connected, why don't we just put those on the rooftops, green rooftops, put them on the walls? That technology for cities insulates buildings, lowers operating costs, like for HVAC equipment. It lowers the temperature of cities by over two degrees Celsius, which is the Paris Climate Accord goal. So if we did green rooftops on cities and nothing else, we would achieve the Paris Climate Accord goals that the U.S. has withdrawn from. It's not that hard to do, and we get there through bees, because you're envisioning visually, what do we do? We put some habits, put some flowers, just all throughout, and that's a beautiful thing for the human experience. I hope that feels good to picture instead of, we call this from gray to green, instead of gray sitting places, right. put some more green stuff, and then nature starts to come back, and then kids can start to have those childhood, the childhoods that we remember of, you know, stepping on a bee and getting stung or seeing butterflies out. We just don't see that anymore, and this is why.
1: Wow. Um. So it's a, it seems like a win-win to make this better make the world better for bees.
0: Yeah, and we refer to the triple bottom line of people, planet and profit. There really is also room for business to make a profit while doing things like a green roof company or an urban beekeeping company like Best Bees. You know, there's opportunities for all of us to come together, have a conversation, see the future identify what feels good and then to be that future. And I think for you and me as young people, Ben, we're able to have a conversation like on a podcast and be that future because we're talking about it. So people start to think, Oh, I guess it's not so controversial to have a roof garden. Oh yeah. This beehive. I mean, they're just vegan garden pollinators. They're not like Godzilla. Let's put beehives (laughs) everywhere. Right. There's nothing else happening there. So by transforming vacant spaces into productive assets That's really how you can have a business way to to carry forward the other good feelings for the people on the planet.
1: Wow. And before we dive into what exactly Best Bees is doing and and how people can get involved or help out indirectly even, um, your approach is is interesting because you aren't studying what kills the bees, you're studying how to save them, which is an interesting approach because I think it does kind of contradict what people would say, well, what's the, the problem? What's, what's killing them? And I think we are, it sounds like you already know what that is. It's what can we do to help them out?
0: Yeah. And this is an example of how conversations like what we're having today, when we have these, then things can advance because what's killing bees, everybody already knows this. We don't. Everybody already knows why bees are important. The farm to table movement allowed people to start thinking, where does this food come from? What? is this an organic restaurant? Like the term organic, we're way more comfortable with now than we were a decade ago. And so it's really nice to not have to talk about why bees matter. It's fun to talk about, but you know, people kind of get that. And we don't have to talk about what's killing them because we've heard of things like pesticides. Like we get it. You know, we know that there's diseases and we know that there's climate change and habitat loss. Those are what's killing bees. And I'm always happy to talk about that, but that gets really depressing, right? (laughs) What's killing this? Why is the world ending? sure but leave that to other people there's many people who are devoting their careers to that question what's killing bees i definitely look at that i record that in my lab uh but i flip it instead of looking at why a dead beehive died i look at why a living thriving beehive lives that's the question i ask
1: and when you ask that question what is it your then what are the steps you're taking to further that when you yeah. figure out the answer what is your now what's your next move
0: it's so fun and if you think about coming back down to adversity right anybody who makes an observation like this right oh bees are dying but there's a beehive and it's looking pretty good right we all have these observations, and me as a scientist, this is the scientific method. It starts with something, an observation. The next thing is a question, following through that scientific method. So all of us would look at something, for me, why is that we have living? That's my question. But other people coming through adversity, even if you're sitting home, you know the millions of people who just lost your job, you have no idea where to go, unemployment checks are not coming through, and it's been over a month. What are you going to do? You're looking around. That's where you start with, and then you notice anything, (laughs) anything at all. Everybody has this. And then you just ask something about it. So, for me, that one's thriving. Why is that? And then I look around and realize I have no resources, right? So, I've not really had anything in life, you know, coming up from a family of teachers, you know, God bless teachers and healthcare workers and all of these amazing heroes every day who are so underpaid and undervalued. So, Looking around, kid I'm growing up as, and I'm thinking, I got nothing. It's not like I have a lab or a grant or a job or anything. and am thinking, what can I do? So I started a Facebook page in 2010 from my living room of the apartment I still live in, in Boston. And I said, I'm selling beehives. I will volunteer my time to manage them in exchange for research funding. Anybody want some bees? And I called it Best Bees on the Facebook page because our bees are the best. Like, I don't know. And for months, it was my mother, God bless her, she's so sweet, still my biggest fan, just hitting like and commenting, go Noah. And even today, my mother is like the best, number one fan for the Best Bees Company. Really sweet. And um, eventually somebody wrote in, they're like, yeah, I'll buy a beehive. And I was like, awesome. Now now what? And (laughs) so I just learned how to grow that business based on this question, why are those beehives doing well? I wanted my question to be about research because I was a scientist, and I am. Maybe some people listening want their question to be about something else. You know, maybe your observation is your bank account and you ain't got no money, right? And you're like, how do I get some money? So just like me, I looked around. I didn't have a resource. I started a Facebook page. Anybody who's looking at a broke bank account, listen, first off, I don't want to offend anybody. I, I understand how difficult this is, and I'm not saying, oh, just do this. But what I am saying is that everybody has knowledge maybe it's about bees or maybe it's about pokemon or investing or whatever people know about everybody knows too much about something for you ben it's hockey right yeah. so then you become a consultant anytime somebody asks you ben about hockey you can charge them a dollar for your answer when i give talks you know around the country around the world I talk to kids and I tell them this, you know way too much about something. Maybe this is what made you a nerd growing up. Maybe people pick on you because you like the color pink, whatever it is, whatever made you a weak target of bullies that as an adult makes you a consultant, you know, Everything about that topic, and you can go into business with. Well, let's say with the Facebook page and ask me anything, and you just say, you know, give me fifty cents for my for my answer. Right? I have value in this world. I have knowledge. Everybody has this, and in doing so, slowly, little by little, over time, even if it's just your mother hitting like on Facebook, <laughs> have patience. And for me, it came through. And you know, ten, eleven years later, now we've built up the nation's leading beekeeping service, and we've raised a few million dollars for bee research. And we do this because the people writing in on Facebook, they said, yeah, I want to buy a beehive. Sure, I'll put a beehive in my, in my backyard garden. I don't want to manage it, but I thought I always had to. So maybe I can hire you to do it. And then a big company would say, hey, let's put beehives on a rooftop. We have nothing else going there. We know that we can have some sustainability benefit. Millennials will think this is a hot place to live, a hot place to work if they keep all the honey, which is what our real estate companies do. I mean, how cool would it be to get home sweet home honey from your apartment landlord? Like, yeah. that doesn't happen especially these days, landlords are trying to kick people out. So a tenant relations thing makes the landlords feel good too. It's not that expensive. And so for me, that's my story. When the people who started asking me questions started paying and helped me build this business so that I'm able to come here and talk to you a decade later.
1: That sounds like the best B company I've ever heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Just to play into the, yes. It's, uh, it's, pretty remarkable to see how that's that's come from just doing something out of, of seems like out of just care you were kind of led to this thing you you became the consultant for it it is it's such a call to action for so many people i know a lot of people that think and i just had a call actually last week about someone that wanted to uh, start giving back i think this pandemic was may have been a call to action they wanted to start a nonprofit and do all this and i similar to what you said it's not all about the fancy bells and whistles it's just about acting doing something leveraging the knowledge you do have and and one thing I think stops a lot of people from doing what they they really want to do in the sense of making an impact on society it's st- they stop because they think they need the nonprofit they think they need the lawyer and they need the fancy business name and they need X Y and Z f- to, to start working and your proof is in the pudding with you it's just put something out there and start acting start delivering the value you really have
0: totally totally it's there's so many details in life you know whether it's personal life business life you know everybody's doing that hustle that combines the two it's all related and connected and so with any details it's tough we're at risk for getting caught up in those so unless you're having fun maybe for a limited period of time, picking your your brand colors for your logo type of thing or your company name. Like, yeah, these are important calls. I get that. But you've got to pick that and keep it moving. Get on to the next detail. Because for business, for funding our accounts personally... As Cardi B says, it's all about that shmoney. That's what you need to keep your eye on. And if you don't, then that's why you're in the situation you're in. And I'm not speaking at, from the perspective of a guy with that shmoney. I'm speaking from an honest point of view about how I'm overcoming starting from from very little and navigating the same resources uh, challenges that most people are. All right. Not trying no. to be older than now and say, "Oh yeah, here's what to do."
1: <laughs> right, right. No, it's it's fantastic insight, and the thing I love most about it, and with uh, continually everyone I've had on the podcast that has done something incredible like you're doing right now, uh, it really, when you really peel back the layers and ask, I don't know if it's the right questions, but you ask enough questions, uh, you realize it's actually quite simple. I mean, we've we've had the someone that started the. Um, well, one, a neurosurgeon that has really simplified what brain surgery is like, and then also an uh, individual that started the first voice recognition software that, that we have locally in town. Uh, awesome. Now, ahead of Google here, uh, they both really, sim- when they tell their story and how they began everything, it was so much more simple than you'd think. We just love to overcomplicate things. So I, I really appreciate uh, you've explained everything.
0: Well, thanks. You know, life is so complicated, especially when we don't see that connectedness of of our society. When we're thinking that whatever trauma people are listening to, when people are coming to the Heroic Minds podcast and you're thinking about adversity and you're thinking about your challenge, your challenge is so significant. Your hurdle, your hill is so high to get over. These things are real. And if you look at society Other people have that too. And while that might not matter to you, and I get that because you're dealing with your own stuff, what's really important to understand eventually is that over time you'll see there's many people who are dealing with the same hill that you are. And I think it's that togetherness that helps us collectively get over that hill. When you can see somebody running a marathon next to you and you can join in that person, you don't feel so alone and it doesn't feel so hard. But it does require you to simplify things a little bit to kind of say, okay, I'm dealing with this trauma, and that fits in this category, and there are a lot of people in that category, and we can connect on a very simple, basic level. That's why it's really important to simplify things.
1: Couldn't agree more. You are, uh, we're on the same page on that for sure. That's what I talk about all the time when I speak. And, and one of the consistent messages that continue to come out of of. Uh, people I'm lucky enough to have on the podcast. So, so thank you for, for reinforcing that, that really powerful and needed message today where more complicated and sexier and flashier or something is we think that must be the answer. That must be it. And let's do another business model. Let's get another degree. And um, yeah, so I appreciate yeah. that. I, the one thing I really liked about uh, the, again, I, you've, Done the great job of calling it food and calling it sex and making it a little more attractive than than the idea of just simple bees. Um, another interesting this, <laughs> this interview: food, sex, and bees. If you like, <laughs> yeah, great idea, great idea, marketing guru. Um, it was interesting to hear though. You can you're actually able in your lab to track where the honey actually came from, where the bees are actually getting what what flowers they're pollinating, whichever that's possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything that we do with the best bees companies for research, that is how we started. That's what differentiates us from any other beekeeper out there. Beekeepers are awesome and dope and like pay your beekeeper. You know, if you want to open up your, your property to having bees, if you want to do the beekeeping, go to beekeeping school, which is a thing, you know, donate pay dues to your beekeeping club you know support the community by joining it and participating if you open up your property to another beekeeper you can have somebody just put their bees there or if it's a service like the best bees company they're your bees we just do it for you kind of like a garden service or a pool service you know like beekeepers for hire and um and i think that it's so important for people to keep thinking about these things. I've forgotten your question, Ben. Ask me again.
1: <laughs> the re- just on that, that research of how you're knowing where the honey's coming from. Good
0: research, thank you. You know, for <laughs> us, when we've got beehives at any given spot, it's a data point. And it's a data point not just for our research, but for our partners like NASA. When they're studying climate change from their Earth Observation Unit in Beltsville, Maryland, they see what The the satellites are telling them for climate data, but they don't necessarily understand what's happening on the ground. And so our beehives are doing great. They're not doing great. They overwinter in surviving the year. They produce a lot of honey or they don't. We give this information to NASA and then together with Google Earth Engine, we're able to look at maps and we're able to understand what the pollinator habitat looks like. Why is this beehive doing great? Why is it not doing great? Was it because of climate change or advancing this, was it because of habitat? We didn't have a way to measure habitat, but our research really points to cities as being best for bees, which is counterintuitive. So if cities are great for bees, the question is why? And so our leading hypothesis seems to be nutrition, We've ruled out pesticides and diseases, and I've given a couple TED Talks on these topics. So I'll save that for people to kind of go to TED.com and look up Noah for more data on what's saving the bees and how you can help one beehive at a time. I think that's the title. But... We wanted to test habitat. We wanted to understand, are there more flowers in cities, or are there more nutritious flowers? Is there something that we can learn from human blue zones, areas where humans live longer, like Japan or the Mediterranean, where their diets are thought to contribute to long life? We're seeing some indications from the bee world that this could be it, but we didn't have a way to measure what's the pollinator habitat. The old way was with a couple yard sticks made into a square. And so researchers would just throw these on the ground and then in the square count how many different plant species were there. And that was really, or you go on a hike and you just like take a note, you know, in your, in your journal and figure out, oh, we saw a rose. And that was great. But we wanted to advance on that. And so we figured out a way uh, in partnership with MIT and Hub Week in Boston, which is a great festival for ideas, um, a way to look at the plant DNA genome within honey. So just like ancestry DNA or Twenty Three and Me, looking at our history. So it says you're German. You know, if you spit into a tube with our honey DNA, we call it, it will say this is from roses, like we saw in Portland, Oregon. It will also say here's a complete list of all of the plant types that's found in this honey. That's super cool. It tells us what we're eating. So for Waterloo, Canada, honey, where you're at, Ben, have you had local honey there? Before? Yes, Do I have. You have any local yeah, honey. Yeah. Yep, lots. Do you of farms know what kind of honey around it around is?
1: I wouldn't know. No, I don't.
0: <laughs> so how crazy is that? It's 2020. Not to date our conversation today, but come on, talking about food when we taste honey, we're all like, mm, "Honey, like, I don't know what that is. It's honey. Honey's just flower juice." All honeys are different. Bees are vegan. They just concentrate nectar and they take water out of it. And that's what honey is so it's varied all around the world every time we taste honey it's a taste of that landscape so for our real estate company clients when they put beehives on the rooftop and then they bring to their investors here's a taste of this building it's a really weird spin to show people like we're a sustainable company so for tenants who are looking to get office space when the owners of the building say here's some of our honey this is our building this is what it tastes like in our neighborhood it's <laughs> weird but it keeps people connected with that message of this is a sustainable, cool building building. And for our research beyond that, we're able to work with governments to add value to their honey. We know this from New Zealand and Manuka. Have you ever had Manuka honey? Uh,
1: If I did it again, I apologize. I wouldn't have known. (laughs)
0: No, it's all good. It's kind of like champagne. You know, that's an example of how a government has trademarked a type of food product that we all know, oh, wow, champagne is expensive and special. So we're going to pay those people more. Manuka honey is the equivalent. Oh my gosh, that's so expensive. Costco, it's, you know twice as much as any other honey, so we just pay more because of that brand and its education about what type of honey it is. So, we're able to help people around the world, beekeepers, honey lovers, to earn more money by now, through science, adding value, calling it a premium product. For example, Portland, Oregon, our clients there, we know it's rose honey. It's the city of roses. So, there's a lot of fun marketing the city could even do with sustainability about Portland rose honey. You can see that on the market. I would pay for that. That's cool. But, Getting to the point of this, for our research, we now have a map, a snapshot in time for when that honey was produced for, our Chicago beehives are the closest to you, for any of the 14 cities we're in, to say, here's what the plant pollinator populations looked like when we harvested this honey. And then over time, as climate change inevitably shifts our environment, we then take another snapshot and we look at that honey DNA and we see what was missing, what's more predominant. We're doing this in Australia with the wildfires to see what plants we've lost what plants bounced back first from our Puerto Rico studies with hurricane Maria. It seems like native plants came back first. So local people with this kind of climate justice or social justice spin, Puerto Ricans can then say, wow, native plants might come back first after natural disasters. If we plant more of them or these specific types with deep roots, we could improve our resiliency against climate change in the future. So we do that all with the beehives that we put in people's home gardens and uh, And rooftops
1: Um, and if if someone wanted to because all of a sudden that that is to me such a call to action because of the multiple benefits that that come of of best bees your work and bees in general if someone let's say isn't isn't ready to necessarily have a beehive in their backyard or on their roof but they did want to help they wanted to you know this weekend maybe they want to do something that they can put out in their backyard on their balcony something like that, that that someone could do to help beyond limiting their pollution and helping the environment, what is something they could do to to help in this cause? Well,
0: I love this because everybody can do something regardless of location, age, ability. It's the best case scenario from my perspective as a scientist to be able to connect the things, whatever it is that we do with data. So that's our future of tech, of connectedness. It relates to science, and it relates to citizen scientists. So individuals and companies stepping up to say, the things that we do, we're going to connect them with data in somehow. So whatever people are able to do, let's say this weekend, let's say for Earth Day this week or Earth Week or Earth Month, as we sometimes call it now, it really makes an impact to plant a flower. It sounds so corny, crunchy, And good. Simple, right? Ideally, be thoughtful about what you're planting. So, take a minute to go outside. If you live in a city, you can even do what I love. is called guerrilla gardening. There's a a man who was named Adam Purple from the 1960s in New York who um, just kind of took over the Lower East Side of Manhattan and just started guerrilla gardening, just planting things and seeing them bloom and making beautiful designs that added value and enhanced the neighborhood. 1970s, 1970s, maybe it was the 80s, the city bulldozed it because, you know, it's not allowed. God forbid. You know, this should be the most scandalous thing that people do. But even if you don't have your own garden, I don't have, I've never had my own garden, you find other places too. Maybe it's abandoned property and you just do a seed bomb. You just throw some plants. But be selective about what you want to plant. And even these days, it can be hard to find seeds. So maybe you have a houseplant you can split. Or maybe you go outside and you just pick up a plant from one place and you maybe you know, put it in another one where you can watch it or something. Some way to interact with them. You connect that with science based on what you know pollinators really like in your own area. So maybe that's clover. Maybe you can find this out online through local beekeeping club. Two other resources, one is the Xerces Society. It starts with an X, it's a fun name. So X-E-R-C-E-S, society has guides for free online for local um, native plants. And then with the Best Bees Company, we published our data with National Geographic. So the February 2018 issue highlights some of the cities that we're in and specifically what plant types are really good for pollinators there. So check that out on Nat Geo's website.
1: Fantastic. And is there anything else that, let's say if flowers aren't an option and I'm just, now I'm just, Dive in even deeper. Is there anything else someone could do? Is there uh, to have? Is there something like wood? That, if there's more wood on your patio, if there's anything like that, is there any trends totally. with?
0: Absolutely. So, really, what you can do comes down to two things to help pollinators, and that really secures our food system in a way beyond you know actually being a farmer. Two things: pollinator habitat comes in foraging flavor or in nesting flavor we can call them two flavors so we just talked about foraging habitat how to create that what you're talking about with wood can we put that out nesting habitat is what that comes down to so get a beehive that's something that you might not have space for or you might not have the ability to do that so you're welcome to reach out to us you know BestBees.com. we're always answering these questions about how you can create nesting sites for bees you can create a bee hotel, it's called. So these are for the other species that are not honeybees, with big societies where it's kind of like a birdhouse, but it has these holes. Maybe it's PVC pipe or bamboo or reeds that are arranged in a container. You know, a soup can with straws works where you can um, hang it outside and native bees will just come and they'll make a nest in it and then move out. A bee hotel, checking in and checking out. So you can check those out online too for other resources. They also sell them at a lot of stores. Even Costco sells bee hotels now for $25 in the US. Oh, cool. And wood. I mean, certainly things can drill into those. um, Any native holes or holes from field mice at this time of year where they um, were making nests over the winter, the mice might come out and then it's good to leave that habitat. If you see holes in trees, decaying wood, holes in the ground, bumblebees like to nest in those. There's a preference for how the mice wove the grass. So try to leave nature as it is. Try to let things decay on the ground, and maybe add some other things to help decaying, maybe composting
1: or other ways. And so, would the perfect setup be flowers near something like this? Yeah, it's a good setup. It's a good setup for
0: humans. It looks nice. It feels good. You know. So I think that having as much in your setup as you can is very good for nature. Have a diverse grouping of objects of materials of flowers but the bees themselves don't need flowers nearby because they'll fly for miles away and that's kind of poetic for city dwellers where bees seem to thrive and if you only have a little two by three foot space that's all you need for a beehive so you can do a lot with a little even when it seems like you just a little isn't enough
1: right Right. And now last but not least, a question we haven't stumbled upon or topic we haven't discussed is the stinging side of bees. And yeah. in your talks, you put some pretty cool photos up of people. Maybe others might not find this cool, but people, <laughs> their whole face entirely covered by, by bees. Now, what is the approach so to weird. stinging? What should people think about that? Cause I know you touched on, they're not little Godzilla's running around or flying around. So <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, well, my, uh, Talk in 2012 at TEDx Boston started with the image of a man with a bee beard, so many bees on his face. It's a weird thing. And again, being a person who didn't come from a background growing up playing in the dirt with bees, I was like, that is so weird, it's super gross. And then the last slide in that talk, I show a little girl with a bee beard and I had the goal of changing people's perspectives to understand these people aren't getting stung. You know, they're interacting with pollinators. They're spreading a message that we need our food system secured by preserving these bees. This is how we get healthy food for future generations. And so that message is really important. And safety is so important for everybody to talk about. So people need to feel welcome asking about this and not just being like, go bees, when you really feel scared inside, talk about it. Because there's an education component here. And I use a Jurassic Park movie analogy to best explain this. When you see the kids petting the brontosaurus, the vegetarian dinosaurs, you know, up in a tree, super gentle, just eating plants, but running from the carnivorous dinosaurs like the T-Rex, you get an understanding of how bees are vegan and wasps and hornets and yellow jackets, those are meat eaters. And so beekeepers, we don't want to get stung. And having aggressive bees, I say, is a bad business model. So being in 14 cities over a decade, you know, we have a perfect safety record. We don't want to bring in anything new to the environment that isn't already there in any of these places. Honeybees are around the world. And we also don't want to bring in anything that's not safe. So even though we have full insurance coverage, it is safe especially if you let the trusted beekeepers know uh, that you guys are in charge. So let the experts handle it. So it is safe and understand that we select for vegan garden pollinators. Um, And it, and it's something to continue talking about
1: for all. Amazing. Well, I, I feel like this conversation dipped and dived and went everywhere and it was fantastic. If there's anything else you want to say about best bees or how people can get involved, how people can help, um, I'll hand things over to you.
0: Yeah, I know. I think it's great. Well, Ben, thanks for this opportunity. It's been so fun. Our time flew by. Check us out uh, on social media at Best Bees. What's really unique for what we're building is that this is... Beehives connected to science. It's really important with everything we do, whether you're sitting home thinking about how to overcome a challenge or whether you're leading a business and you're thinking about what impact can you make and how do I do this in a way that adds value and lets others make an impact too in a ripple effect. When you partner with somebody like the Best Peace Company, you're really helping us advance our research in an original way. It's not just doing what's already there. It's not just recycling ideas. It's not just copying other things. It's really participating as a citizen scientist to do something new that's uncharted that might feel scary because it is. But we've got to stay together. That's, I think, maybe the theme of our talk today. To get through uncertain times and it might feel hard to talk to other people about that but that's really
1: what gets us through right now actually uh last question i guess is is there are you guys moving into a little bit north into the canadian area with your business or should people take on the basically the ideas that you've set forward in this in this podcast or is there there maybe ability to to have best bees come to canada
0: yeah, definitely. I mean, that's part of the beauty of, of this idea and certainly other people's ideas scale because there are beehives and bees and beekeepers everywhere around the world. This idea for the Best Bees Company is easily scalable around the globe. So I totally see a future of cities that move from gray to green that are not just getting green rooftops but are getting gardens and community gardens. Imagine it with the future when we can pick carrots from our apartment building rooftop, God forbid, right? And get some fresh honey. So I think that's going to happen and we're definitely building a scale, you know, starting from my Boston living room apartment, um, to, you know, 14 cities now and counting. We definitely have a lot of growing demand from Canada. We love talking to people there. Um, so reach out to us, all Canadians. keep uh, Help us building up our wait list so that uh, we'll be ready to launch there very soon and from anywhere around the world, too. You know, our research spans the globe. Part of my TED Talks, I really try to talk about those results and uh, it really takes a village. It's going to take everybody reaching out so do not hesitate. Uh, Info at bestbees.com is our email and I'm just so grateful to you and to listeners for being open to, to bees can i add one thing too yeah before you cut it so i think maybe my team will be like you didn't say what we do Yeah. <laughs> Cool. So I just want to add what the Best Bee's company actually does. So we install beehives. We build them by hand. We bring the bees. We don't just wait for them to come like a birdhouse might. And so that's how we select safe, great garden pollinators. And then we'll fully manage the beehives on behalf of our clients, whether it's a home garden or a real estate company's rooftop or a hotel or a restaurant. Um, certainly, when we pull through this, we're going to do all the work for our clients. And so that's something that involves a month visit on average. We might come by maybe once a week if the bees aren't doing so great, maybe a little less than once a month if they are doing great. It's an all-inclusive service, so we would never charge our customers more if the bees aren't doing well. It's all built in there to fund not just the installation and the maintenance, um, but also the research data that we're collecting. Our clients also keep 100% of the honey that their bees make and then can also supplement honey from our own local apiaries where we breed our bees and do other research. So it really gives back to the community in an all-inclusive way that creates paying jobs for local beekeepers. So we've got about 75 to 80 beekeepers as employees on our staff across the country. And this is something that creates jobs and opportunities for people potentially around the world. Uh, So continue reaching out to us, um, build the support, keep us with the momentum going, and, um, and we'll check back in with you in the future.
1: That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. Remember to keep the conversation going. Shoot me an email, share this episode with someone else, leave a positive review on whatever platform it is you use to listen. To the heroic podcast. I'm Ben Finelli. We will talk again soon. Thanks for listening.